Good morning. Let's turn in the Word of God to Philippians 4. While I'm turning there, I'd like to publicly express thanks on behalf of our family to each of you for your interest in the Word of God. And many of you have had very edifying and encouraging conversations with us, and some of you have shown us practical hospitality, and so we're grateful for all these things. You didn't know this, I don't think I mentioned, but the first time I ever spoke at an adult conference, I think I was maybe 24 years old, the other speaker was a very kind veteran servant of God named Rex Trogdon. So I'm grateful to the committee, not only for the privilege of speaking, but for getting to share the meetings again with Brother Rex. And it's always lovely to be with Sister Nancy and he. I'll teach you an adjective. They are Onesiphorian. Now, Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1 was said to be a refreshing brother. And that's the kind of couple the Trogdons have been, not only to us, but to many. And so we're thankful for them and for their ministry. If I can do a commercial for next year, uh, I'll be back. But... <laughs> I guess this being California, I should say, I'll be back. But um, to offset that, to sort of sweeten the deal, okay? With your medicine, uh, the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, so I'm told. And Brother Steve Price is an excellent brother. He is uh, also Onesiphorian, okay? He is a gifted teacher of the Word of God and an encouraging brother. So if you can at all make it back again next year, if uh, this wonderful fellowship isn't enough to draw you, you won't uh, be disappointed in Brother Steve Price. I can tell you that. Let's read in the Word of God, Philippians 4.4. 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we pause to remind ourselves that the man who penned those words was in prison at the time. So the wonderful mindset that he's been speaking of in Philippians, a mind placed upon Christ and a mind filled with Christ and a mind that is Christ-like can turn a dungeon into a place of joy or even house arrest, as this probably was at this point. Later in 2 Timothy, it would be a dungeon. But I can't imagine any imprisonment is fun. So for someone to say rejoice in the Lord under those circumstances, to me is a tremendous testimony. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Now we come to a practical section of this letter where Paul has urged the sisters that are not getting on, Yodius and Syntyche, to be of one mind in the Lord and urged other workers in that assembly to come alongside those dear ones and help mend the breach. And that's encouraging because we shouldn't look back to the New Testament and think, oh, this was some sort of idyllic time where the saints didn't struggle, where there weren't everyday problems of disagreements and where there weren't issues and things where people were sinning against one another and needed to forgive one another and to repent respectively. This is a problem as old as there have been people since Genesis 3 at least, that there has been contention and we have pride and we often want our own way and sometimes willingly or unwillingly we sin against one another. How good it is, however, in the Lord Jesus to have that resource, to be able to come back to the Lord and confess to the Lord, I've been wrong, I've sinned, and to confess to our brothers and sisters whom we've sinned against, I've sinned, and to have them as commanded and taught by our Lord to offer forgiveness. What a sweet thing that is. If you have spent any time in this world with people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll know that peace and forgiveness are very rare commodities indeed. And yet it's to be normal Christianity. So even when two of the premier sisters of the assembly, two of the hardworking servants in the gospel, are at odds, they're to come together in the Lord. And then he's immediately able to speak about this joy. Now in verse 5, when he says, let your gentleness be known to all men, that word gentleness is one of these rich Greek words that we have trouble translating into other languages. I like the rendering by one Greek scholar. He says, let your sweet reasonableness be known to others. Christians ought not to be known as people that are mean or people that are embittered or people that are constantly angry. Uh, The Word of God tells us, be angry and sin not. There are appropriate things to be angry about, to be angry about sin. But what people should think of when they think of us is there is a brother or sister, there's a person whose life exudes sweetness. There is someone who's going to show kindness to other people and one who conducts themselves with humility. That's all wrapped up in that word. And that's what we are to have as a testimony. Let that be known to all men, he says. And then he gives the reason the Lord is at hand, or maybe better rendered, the Lord is near. Because it's the word which in other contexts is used to describe the coming of the Lord. Now, some people say, he's saying, now have this attitude of sweet reasonableness. Live in such a way before other people that they consider you someone that they come to in time of trouble, someone that's going to show them mercy, someone that's going to be kind to them, someone that's going to tell them the truth, someone that's going to be there to help. Do that because the Lord is coming. Okay, well, that's true. There's a lot of things in the Christian life where we are encouraged by the coming of the Lord, not least of which our sanctification, as 1 John 3 reminds us. But The word for coming, parousia, actually can mean presence as well. Paul uses it earlier in the book in chapter 2 when he says, You've obeyed me in all things, not only in my 
presence, and it's the same word there, but in my absence, he says. So literally, it's a compound word meaning a being alongside. And some people think that he's not here talking so much about the coming of the Lord, the rapture or the second coming to earth, which the parousia is used for either one of those in Scripture. But what he's thinking about here, rather, is the presence of God in his assembly. Because we have to remember, as we interact with our fellow believers especially, and even our testimony in the world, we have the indwelling Christ. We have the Lord living within us by His Spirit. And corporately in the assembly, the Lord promises to be there when the saints meet together in His name, Matthew eighteen twenty. So when He says about the Lord is near... We have to remember, yes, the Lord's coming, but the Lord's presence is already among us. And that needs to translate into how we live and what our attitude is one for another. Now, it gets even more practical in verse 6 when he says, be anxious for nothing. And imagine, here's the prisoner of the empire of Rome who could be executed. He entertains that possibility in chapter 1, but he says, be anxious for nothing. Now, this is not Bobby McFerrin theology. You remember Bobby McFerrin, the great jazz and classical composer who is kind of ticked off about it, but the world remembers him for don't worry, be happy. You know, he's performed at Carnegie Hall and conducted great symphony orchestras and great jazz ensembles, but everybody remembers don't worry, be happy. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying put on a happy face just sort of pretend that everything's all right. No. When the Bible tells us not to do something, it's fascinating how often God then tells us what to do instead. In other words, we're not put in a vacuum as believers. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's like someone has said, why worry when you can pray? Our Father is one who wants us to take our cares to the place that He has appointed through His Son. What Hebrews chapter 4 describes as the throne of grace, where we find a high priest who is merciful, that is, He is able to offer compassion in extremity and in difficulty, and He is faithful. In other words, the line is never busy when you pray to the Lord. He's always there for you. And you can take every care to him. As 1 Timothy 6, or is it 1 Peter 5? I can't remember which right now. But one of them says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And so it's very important, instead of letting our anxieties and our worries and our concerns and our burdens weigh us down, he says, instead... Take them to the Lord. And with prayer, that's the more generic word, and supplication, that's the specific word for what we're requesting, make your uh, request be made known to God there. And he also, of course, brings in thanksgiving. We should not forget. Yes, bring your needs to God, bring your problems to God, bring your burdens to God, but be careful to thank God for all the blessings he gives. Be careful to look back and see the answered prayers of the past. And as you're praying to God and putting your confidence and your trust in God, you're able to thank him for all he's done for you. You do this to let your requests be made known to God. And what is the result? Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. 
Now, how can you be in prison and have peace? How can you not know where your next meal is coming from and have peace? How can you know whether you're going to live three more months and have peace? Naturally speaking, you can't. People can try to teach you techniques and and things to put on a certain mindset, but in the end, it's false, and it doesn't stand up to the realities of life. But the Lord Jesus, whom Isaiah 9, 6 describes as the Prince of Peace, he is able to give us peace, isn't he? I mean, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the number one area of conflict has already been settled. We who know the Lord Jesus by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. We who were enemies of God, at enmity with him, antagonistic and alienated in our minds by wicked works, we've been brought back into a right harmony with God, reconciled to him and given a positive righteous standing before him. God has declared us righteous. That's what the word justification means. So therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 reminds us. And practically here, that objective peace translates into subjective peace. We who have peace with God through the Lord Jesus can in turn know the peace of God in our everyday life as we carry things to him in prayer. What a wonderful thing that is to experience the peace of God. I've seen it in families that have gone through horrible, terrible trials. And humanly speaking, I've looked at them and I've said, now how can they stand this? You know, how can they still go on? The the week I met my wife in Canada, some of you have uh, been bored with that story or burdened with that story perhaps, or maybe even amused by that story. But the week I met my wife in the place where we were in Canada, I had a friend who was extremely ill with severe colitis. He was only a man in his 20s. He was six foot two and he was down to about 118 pounds. His life was somewhat in jeopardy. They weren't sure how things were going to go for him. He ended up having to have major surgery the following week to give him a colostomy. So Uh, messed up was his digestive system. So in between preaching at this camp, I would go over and visit this brother at the hospital. And in the middle of the week, his four-year-old daughter, who was running around, playing, looking completely healthy, I saw her the one day, and 24 hours later, she was in glory. She was gone. A mysterious infection took hold of her body and began attacking her organs. And although they rushed her out, to the best hospital in that region of Canada, in Ottawa, Canada, a special pediatric hospital with some world-renowned specialists attending to her. They couldn't get ahead of her. They, they tried to get ahead of the infections, and everything they tried wasn't going well. And there was the mother as they were putting tubes and putting things into the daughter. And as this was going on and the life was ebbing away from the little girl, the doctors just put up their hands and they said, there's nothing we can do. And uh, my friend Darlene, the mother, she prayed out loud spontaneously, Lord, She's yours. 
if you want her, you can take her. And they said, these doctors and nurses that deal with death all the time were openly weeping. So moved were they by what was happening. Well, it was a tremendous event. To us, a tragedy, something sad, something that obviously even now we look back on with emotion. And yet about three years later, her younger sister was stricken with leukemia. And she was treated in the same hospital. And in that ward where the children are, they have pictures of little children that have been in that hospital before and that have died. And there was this little girl in the bed underneath the picture of her sister. And they have an uncanny resemblance. And a nurse asked the mother, I I can't help but ask, are these two related? They're so alike. The last name wasn't on the picture. She said, yes, that's her sister. And she told her the story. How can a family have peace in the midst of that? That family has gone on for the Lord. That family has been part of starting an assembly in another part of Canada. They are going on faithfully to God. How can they endure things like that? It's unimaginable to us as we consider it here today. But what I'm talking about, what I'm describing, is real. It's the peace of God. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never experience it. You will never know that settled peace that can stand up against anything that life can throw at you. Not because Christians are tougher. In fact, we're among the weakest people. God has chosen the weak things, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, to confound the mighty. But it's because we have a strong Savior. That is why we can have the peace of God. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, verse 7. We can't explain it. We can't define it. Uh, We can't even describe it adequately. He says, it will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So much in Philippians about the mind. And your mind is going to be protected by this peace of God. As you go through the trials... God is going to minister. God is going to give you that peace as you rely on him. He will take away the doubts. He won't answer all the questions. But just as he told Job, he didn't tell Job why. He never explained why Job was suffering what he was. Instead, God did something greater. He told Job who. He said, this is who I am. This is the kind of God I am. I'm a great God and a good God that may be trusted because I am just. And Job rested in that. And we don't have any record of him being told why in this life. But it was enough to know who. It was enough to trust God. I think of a poem I wish I could quote by William Blaine, the South African poet who wrote, Uh, a a poem called, Be Not Afraid, Tis I. And you remember the disciples said that when they were in the storm and the Lord Jesus came to them and they were afraid, they thought it was a ghost. But the Lord Jesus said, Be Not Afraid, Tis I. And he goes through the poem and he talks about how these storms of life come to us and yet we can't stand, we don't know what's going on, and we question what's going on, and we hear the voice of the Lord above the storm saying, be not afraid, tis I. 
It's that which gives us peace, that our Lord is with us, that our Lord is taking care of us, that our Lord will guard us. Well, verse 8 tells us how to cultivate this mind. He says, finally, and again, it's that word marking a change of subject. For the rest, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, when you go through that list, we live in a time when there's never been more information that you can set your mind upon. You want to know something? We even have coined new words in the last decade. Just Google it, right? You put it into a search engine and you have hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of hits of different pages, of different factoids and bits of information that you can assimilate. Of course, we live in a time when there's never been more entertainment. You think about people in the Middle Ages having to wait for the troubadours to come through town. Now we can download any genre of music that we care to. You know, if we're thinking about it, we wake up with a Johnny Cash song in our head. We can even go to YouTube probably and listen to it for free if we want. Or better yet, listen to the Dixons and their friends, the RSVs and their CDs uh, and so forth. Uh, Well, Doug has CDs. I don't know if the RSVs have cut any, but anyway. Better stuff there. But in all of the things we could put our minds on, here's what he's telling us. Put your minds on the best, on what is noble, not on what is sordid and base. Put your mind on what is just, what is righteous. We live in a world where injustice is rife, where inequality is endemic. In other words, there is terrible bias and there is terrible racism and there is terrible hatred of man against his fellow man. And often the good guys don't win in this world. But we are to put our minds on whatever is just, whatever is fair, whatsoever things are pure. And of course, there's a sewer all around us, morally speaking. Whatsoever things are lovely, the truly Lovely, not that which titillates the flesh, not that which appeals to our base natures, not the pornographization of our world that is so much around us, but to put our minds on the things that are truly lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, thing praiseworthy, meditate, put your mind steadily on these things and chew and mentally masticate on these things. And when I think about each one of those attributes, there's only one person I know who that is a perfect description of. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who conducted himself with greater nobility, who was a true hero that was never lowering himself, but always helping others, always reaching out and blessing others. Who was more true? than the one who described himself in John 14, 6, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Who else was just like the Lord Jesus? 
who never set aside God's law. Rather, he said, I am come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The one who always upheld righteousness. The one who, as the scripture says in Psalm 40 and quoted in Hebrews 1, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, or hated lawlessness. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Whatsoever things are pure, Here is one who had no admixture of iniquity. Here is one who had no flesh. He said, the enemy is coming. The prince of this world, the ruler of this world is coming. And he hath nothing in me in John 14. There was no weak point on the Lord Jesus. He was tested and tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He was the one who, whichever direction the temptation came from, He would stand for God and he would be absolutely pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. The Shunammite in Song of Songs speaks of her bridegroom. And whether it's directly talking about the Lord or not, I think it's the best application we could make. The Lord Jesus is the altogether lovely one. We look at him and like a jewel, whatsoever way you turn him in the light, you see different facets, you see different beauties, you see different glories. You see him under pressure and the darker things are around him, the brighter he shines. Is there anything of good report? Well, Isaiah asked the rhetorical question in Isaiah 53, 1, who hath believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But there's never been a better report given of anyone than of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even those crucified around him had to say, this man has done all things well. The Lord Jesus excels everyone in good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, and he is the most virtuous, most worthy of praise person that has ever been, he deserves our praise. He says, meditate on these things. Now, I like to read the word of God. And I try to read it systematically. I try to read it sometimes with great sections, survey reading. That's a good thing to do. You get to be acquainted with what's in Scripture. It can help you in your studies with cross-referencing, where you see different parts of the Word of God that agree. It can also show you the thought flow of a passage, as Brother Rex mentioned last night, because after all, the Holy Spirit put the Bible together in books on purpose. So survey reading is very good. But as I was talking to someone even this week, the danger of survey reading, and he was saying this to me, and I was saying I've found the same thing in my own life, is you can get yourself on a plan and you say, okay, I've got to read four chapters today. And you read your four chapters and you say, well, that's me for today. And you go on your merry way. I have a good friend who got very high up in the business world at the executive level, and he was very prosperous. He hadn't really set out to get as high as he did. He had just been a diligent, good employee and was a good Christian in that sense. God wants us to do what we do heartily as unto the Lord and to be good workers and to work well for a good wage. But it became utterly consuming to his life. And he described it this way. He said, I faithfully read my Bible every morning. But he said, from my front door out to the driveway to get in my car, I absolutely forgot what I had read. 
Paul's saying here, no, you put your mind on the Lord Jesus and you meditate on him. You think about him. Slow it down. By all means, do your survey reading. But also just take a verse or take a few verses or take a chapter and go through that and think about what it says about Christ. I remember Boyd Nicholson Sr. telling a story about two men that hailed from his area of Scotland, an area where apparently there were a lot of miners. And these two miners would pass each other in the morning walking on the way to work. And they were both believers. And the one would say to the other, Brother, where art thou gleaning? And the other brother said, I'm gleaning in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay. Well, the next day it happened again. Where art thou gleaning? I'm gleaning in Ephesians chapter 1. The third day it happened. Where art thou gleaning? Ephesians chapter 1. He said, brother, why is it you're still in Ephesians chapter 1? There's so much more in the Bible. He said, ah, brother, I'm digging a shaft. You know, that's what miners do, right? They dig a shaft down to the ore. And sometimes you got to camp out on a passage of Scripture and just say, I'm going to look there and I'm going to think about that and I'm going to pray and let the Lord show himself to me. Well, I asked a brother one time, brother, how long do you do that? He said, how long can you squeeze an orange? Well, you squeeze it till you're not getting juice out of it, till you can't get juice out of it. Now, the word of God's inexhaustible. So you're never going to squeeze all the juice out of that orange, if you'll forgive the analogy. But, you know, you might squeeze out for a time what you can get from a certain passage of Scripture. And you go to something else. But you know what? You may come back years later and you revisit a passage, you revisit a psalm, even something that seems very familiar to you. You've been over it lots and suddenly you see something new about it. Suddenly there, the Lord gives you another nugget. That's how the Word of God is. And we need to take time in our world to slow down and do that. It's a busy world, I know. But don't worry, technology is not completely against us. You can do it on your smartphone. Get one of these Bible apps like version. you know. You can do it on your laptop computer. You can do it on your tablet device. You can listen to it being read to you in MP3 in your car or on your iPod or MP3 player or whatever it is. There's so many different ways of getting the scripture before us and considering it. The problem is not the availability of it. The problem is our willingness. And so let us meditate on these things, even meditate on Christ. But then he says in verse 9, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. There's something to be said for not the newest, greatest, latest thing, but going back to the truth that you already know and practicing it. Going back to what God has shown you and saying, here I stand. I'm going to set down my flag here on this scripture and I'm not going to move. Not only had he heard and received it, but they had also seen it and heard it in Paul. He was living out what he taught. And what a challenge that is for us who have the responsibility of opening the word of God. James chapter 3 tells us, Brethren, become not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. We're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Thank God there'll be by grace some reward, but there's also going to be loss. 
And we have to be careful how we build. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We have to be opening the word and building on Jesus, not only in what we teach, but in how we live. Exemplifying our teaching, putting feet to our doctrine. And he promises the God of peace will be with them. Now, at verse 10, just to summarize the end, at verse 10, he changes tact and he appends a section to the letter, which we might call today a thank you note. They had sent him a gift. And it's a wonderful passage to consider. I don't have time to expound it to you, regrettably. But Paul makes a few points there that are important to note. Number one, as the servant of God, it's really important to be content. And Paul had said, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. If I'm abounding, if I have a lot, great. I can use that as a steward of the Lord. I can share with others. I can meet others' needs as well as my own. And I'll do that to the glory of God. That's hard to do, to abound to the glory of God. Or it may be that I'm suffering lack, that I don't have enough, or that I just have barely enough, that I'm abased. Paul says, I'm content doing that. Whatever the Lord determines, I'm not in it for the money. I'm not going to go around begging, but I'm thankful for the people of God whose heart is touched, says Paul, who send me gifts, and they even sent him a gift when he was ministering elsewhere in Thessalonica. So we should get away from the mindset of just paying for performance or paying for services rendered. I realize there's a principle that if we've learned spiritual things from God's teachers, that we are responsible to support them. But it's not always commensurate with, okay, you've preached this sermon, that equals this dollar amount. Or you've preached these number of sermons, that increases to more. We should be willing to share with workers who are working in completely different fields, where practically we may never see direct benefit. Why should we do that? Because it's God's work, not ours. It's not all about us and the results we see and the results that come to us. It's a big world and God's using his servants all over the place. So we've got to be sensitive to the Lord's leading, even to give to others who are laboring in other places as the Philippians did to Paul when he labored in Thessalonica. But I like how he describes their gift. It sort of gives you a good view of stewardship in verse 18. He describes it as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, uh, pleasing, well-pleasing to God. So this is a tremendous thing that they could give to God, and God says, you know that little bit of money, that little sum you gave to me, or that thing in kind, that material thing you gave to me, I'm able to take that and receive that as a sacrifice. That glorifies me, that pleases me, and doubtless I'll reward you. And what's more, you don't have to be afraid to give to God because verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He won't supply everything we desire per se because that may not be good for us, but he will supply all our need. And I can say without making our needs known to any man, for 15 years in the full-time service, the Lord has never let us down. And even before that, when I was a working man and before that a student, and even all my life, the Lord has met my every need. He's a faithful God, so we can trust him. And so it's lovely to see Paul's thankfulness, but also the principles of the giving God that we have. Now he closes with this lovely doxology, and I'd like to read it without comment as I close. 
Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we're thankful for thy word. We pray that thy spirit would use it in lives. There's so much more to be said, Father, but we would give the last word to thee. We trust thee to have said what thou desirest through Philippians this week, and we pray for thee to continue to use it as the saints consider it this week and as they go from here and think about what they've heard and maybe as others listen to the recordings or even as people that don't know the Lord Jesus here, that they would be drawn to Christ and that Christ would become more to us all the time. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' own holy name. Amen.